in some ways, as soon as we sit in a grand church like this, as soon as a person in a dog collar talks about forgiveness, in some ways, we're all lost. The operation of actual forgiveness is not best expressed in words declaimed from a pulpit, although that's usually the way we do hear about it. Actual forgiveness is more at home among the tears of bewilderment, uncertain and tentative yearning, than in the echoing certainty of a sermon or a lesson in morality. And so I suppose the first thing that I want to contribute is that although the Christian tradition has had a lot to say about forgiveness, the way we've often tried to say it has run and still runs the risk of distancing us from its revolutionary power in a life actually lived. It's not that there's a line called forgiveness and we're one side of it and Marion and others are somehow on the other side of it. As you've listened to Marion, I guess you'll have had a huge variety of reactions, some about her, probably mostly about you. You might be sitting there thinking, I couldn't do that. Or you might have been saying to yourself, I don't know what I'd do, but maybe I'd be able to do that. When his friends asked him how to pray, Jesus replied with a simple, direct, but rather ambitious set of things to say to God. And right in the middle of that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is that fundamental linking of our being forgiven with the possibility that we might be able to forgive. Forgive us, we pray, as we forgive others. In my experience as a priest, forgiveness is a very complex dynamic that often causes people of faith a good deal of angst, a good deal of worry and guilt. Or, on the other hand, it seems like something that's just not relevant to a life lived where you're just getting on with things and doing your best. Forgiveness either seems impossibly tortuous or, on the other hand, kind of irrelevant. I see this at the baptism of a child. As part of the service, I will, on behalf of the church, ask the parents and godparents do you repent of your sins? I often see people shuffling about a bit when it gets to that. Mostly not because they're feeling bad, but because they're really trying hard to think of something that they might be sorry for. Well, I could have been nicer to her or him, they think, but basically I'm living a good life, not hurting anyone. Or on the other hand, pastorally, I spend time with people who are racked with a sense of over-responsibility for everything. People can feel racked about the melting of the ice caps, the existence of nuclear weapons, a famine far away, or simply everything they have ever done. If only I were a different person, they say, this might not be happening. 
these two extremes seem to me to be common, either basically feeling we're doing all right, not really responsible for things that are wrong, or living with the assumption that basically we're responsible for everything that's going wrong. Both are forms of avoidance, as is the making of forgiveness into a moral code that's somewhere between impossibly generous and, on the other hand, even unattractively pious. Forgiveness can become, in the amplified voice of the church, something of a blunt instrument that pounds away at us, Sunday by Sunday, dulling our sensitivity to the fundamental repentance that we are called to, almost preventing us from hearing the truly revolutionary path to freedom that a lifelong commitment to forgiveness can represent. How often should I forgive, asked Peter? As many as 77 times? 70 times seven. And this to the man who betrayed Jesus, denying him three times, leading to his execution. And then on the beach, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Reminding him by these three repeated questions of the worst thing he'd ever done going there, bringing it up again in order for the relationship to be restored. And so right at the beginning, I want to say that I don't think it's our job in the church to tell people to forgive. There is a timeliness about forgiveness, and for many, many people, it's not yet. It's not now. It can't be forced. And as far as possible, all the shoulds and oughts should themselves be banished from the conversation. And so I want to offer some reflections around three themes, borrowed from the American writer and adapted Anne Lamott. The past, the truth, and me. The past. How forgiveness works is inextricably caught with our attitude towards our past. It can be the distant past. I well remember when I was a priest on the staff here at St. Paul's, having a long conversation with an American tourist right here under the dome, just over there. He'd argued with his sister 40 years previously over their mother's will, and they hadn't spoken since. He was experiencing an unfocused yearning for reconciliation. He missed her, but was still angry with her, as he assumed she was with him, and he just didn't know where to start. It can also be the near past. Everything that Marion and I have said is already in the past. We can't change it. As soon as it's happened, it's already beyond our reach. And so just by speaking, I'm opening myself to my need for your forgiveness. The New Testament word in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive them, is the verb aphemi, which carries the meaning to release, to set aside, to let go. Another word is also used for forgiveness, charizomai, 
in Jesus' story about the creditor forgiving the debt of two debtors in Luke's gospel. The creditor, freely and without the debtors necessarily deserving it, forgives the debt. In the sense of charism, there's more of a sense of gift, more like the English word, which has the sense of give in it to forgive. Both words used for forgiveness imply some space, even some distance, to be released, to be free. Key to any consideration of forgiveness, then, is our own attitude towards our past. Because we collect the evidence for the person that we actually are, rather than the person we'd like to be, from our life lived in time. How we deal with our past, personal and collective, is a huge question, and one that often causes us anxiety and strain. Daring to contemplate our past is obviously essential work in the cycle of confession, repentance, restoration. We can't change the past we've lived, or within that, the wrong that we've done. We're powerless to change it, and so we must deal with it another way. Without this fundamental recognition of our powerlessness to change the past, we can become caught in a pattern like the man at the pool at Bethesda in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. You remember him, stuck in a cycle of repetitive, futile attempts to move while blaming everyone else for not releasing him. Like the person in John's Gospel story, this can last for 38 years. Or to coin a phrase, 30 times 38 the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf thinks we live today in what he calls a graceless age. And he puts it simply, we can only do new deeds, not undo the old ones. This is a hard truth to accept. In talking too about our past, there's a question about remembering and forgetting. One of the operations of grief is a learned forgetfulness. And it seems to me that we re-narrate the past many times. We tell ourselves the story of how it ended or what I did. And in the telling, it changes subtly each time. I was speaking last week to a woman who is a survivor of torture. She said that she'd got to the point where she felt she could forgive, that is in her own mind, release the person who had had such a hold over her, but she couldn't forget. Perhaps the operation of forgiveness is both to remember and release. And in this remembering and releasing, perhaps for our own sake, sometimes learn to forget. Which brings me to my second set of reflections about the truth as well as acknowledging our powerlessness about changing the past, forgiveness asks us that we somehow tell the truth to ourselves. And if we're people of faith, we want to find a way to tell the truth to God. The topic of one of Jesus' last conversations was truth with Pilate, the Roman governor who had the power to put him to death. 
when the stakes were at their highest, Pilate's question was, what is truth? And as a way into this, I want to talk about our identity. Am I a victim or a perpetrator? Christian faith will want to hold out the possibility of redemption. And for this to work, our identities remain, to use a word that's particularly current at the moment, fluid. Even if something catastrophic has happened in our lives, if we have done something hugely damaging to someone else, or if we have had something done to us, the way we narrate our past can sometimes cast us either as victim or perpetrator and lock us there. This is particularly true in the criminal justice system and in prison. But actually, I want to offer these reflections on this for those of us who are not engaged in that system, those of us living in the world out here. The philosopher Gillian Rose reflected deeply on these characterizations of ourselves as either permanent perpetrator or permanent victim. She reflected on what she called the unmendedness of the world. <coughs> she challenged her readers to resist the easy characterization of ourselves as somehow neutral observers of a horrible historical evil for her, the Holocaust. <coughs> this is, she argued, to rescue ourselves. What Gillian Rose says to 21st century Europeans is bracing. She argues that it's easy to develop a solidarity between those who think that deep down they're innocent of the world's wrongs. She argues not for a solidarity of the falsely innocent, but what's called by one of her interpreters, the solidarity of the shaken. A solidarity that comes from our acute awareness of the suffering in the world. Her writing has much to say to us about truth. She said that she was trying to find a way of building solidarity and community that's free from what she calls propaganda. The only way to avoid propaganda is honest prayer, she says, in which we're confronted with another reality, a depth of reality that remains, despite our attempts to domesticate it, strange to us. It's only this kind of religion, she says, that can ultimately dissolve the towering totalitarian certainties of fascism. Our faith is partly there to shake us out of our delusions of uninvolved innocence. This past Sunday, two days ago, we held at St. James's, as we do every year, London's service for the charity Road Peace, commemorating all the people who have been killed on London's roads in the past year. Borough mayors attend, representatives of the emergency services, the police choir sings. Ministers of the Crown come and speak about policy, and campaigners come to ensure that the language is right. Not road traffic accidents, many of them are not accidents, but road traffic collisions or crashes. 
It's a service where raw emotions of anger, grief, despair, and fury are expressed at the futility of the crash that killed the one that they loved. And the often complicated aftermath where blame is too often attributed to the one who died. This year's congregation was newly raw with grief. One woman told of her daughter, <coughs> who was a passenger in a car crashed by a drunk driver. He escaped injury, but she was trapped in the car as it caught fire. When she was told by the police of her daughter's death, she asked immediately if she should go with them to identify her body. There is no body, replied the police officer. All of us who heard her story were immensely moved by her courage and the courage of the people who come to that service. I also wonder though about another circle of people who are not there but whose lives are intimately bound by the events brought before God that day. The drivers, the perpetrators, the ones whose inattention ruined the lives of so many in ending the life of one. The ones whose sometimes willful speeding or culpable negligence meant that they too live with a different kind of life sentence. I have sometimes wondered, given that church is a place to bring our grief and greed and guilt, what a service would look like for all the people who had killed someone on the road. The ubiquitous and ordinary use of roads is a useful metaphor for what I'm trying to say about the multiple identities with which we live as victims and perpetrators. In our common use of the roads, a cyclist easily becomes a driver on a different day, and all drivers are at some time pedestrians. A police officer becomes a driver, a medic becomes a cyclist, but at one point in time, we assume the identity, and in the event of a catastrophe like a crash, our identities are fixed. Victim, perpetrator, helper, bystander. The truth is we move all the time between these roles, on the roads as in life. Accepting this truth that our identities are not fixed as perpetrators or victims might help us cultivate compassion towards ourselves and towards others. Might help us live with the gap between the person we know we are and the person we want to be and also know that the only gaze which falls on all of these identities, the only gaze that contemplates us wholly, is that of God. Lastly, me. To live with myself, to know myself deeply enough to know how to ask for forgiveness, and in turn raise the possibility that I can forgive. For Miroslav Volf, to be forgiven is two things. To receive both the accusation and the release from debt. How do we receive the accusation? By confessing and repenting. How do we receive forgiveness? 
by trusting that we're forgiven and becoming able to rejoice in the generous gift of the release. Sin confessed can be forgiven, but what the reformer Martin Luther called sin defended can't be forgiven. Therefore, in a modern context, it's the case that often I'm simply not aware of my own sin or my hypocrisy. Despite my best efforts to find it all and name it all, it's resolutely hidden from me. It can be seen by others, by you, and it can be seen by God. It's in part my growing awareness of this, which deepens as I mature, which takes me to church and by and large keeps me there. I try to follow Christ, commit to my practice of religion with others, precisely because I know my need of God. Because I live in the gap between the person I am and the person I want to be. Because I recognize St. Paul's flesh and long for Christ's spirit. Because there are times when I have sat in the valley of the dry bones of my life and begged them to remember how to dance the past, the truth, and me. Areas of life that I'm invited to excavate, discover, and explore in my search for the freedom that forgiveness might bring. And so finally, there's a false kindness in the assurances of some contemporary spiritual perspectives, which essentially say, that being made in the image of God, a fundamental Christian principle, means that everything we say and do is fine. And there's a false strictness in the kind of spiritual practice that fruitlessly and repetitively talks about sin and little else. Both this false kindness and false strictness are methods of avoiding a path to freedom that's on offer in a forgiveness-shaped life. Gillian Rose wrote an amazing book when she knew that she herself was dying of cancer and had not much longer to live. Love's work is a message from the front line of suffering and forgiving, a message from the front line of living. To live, to love, is to be failed, to forgive, to have failed, to be forgiven forever and ever. Keep your mind in hell and despair not. This last comment was one that seemed to comfort Gillian Rose as she was dying. It's the wisdom of the 19th century Russian Orthodox monk Siluan, breathtaking in its simplicity and challenge. Keep your mind in hell and despair not. And it's on that thought that I end my reflections tonight. Because to me as a Christian, that life is a Christ-shaped life and the story of the human condition. The path to freedom is littered with my attempts to face the past, the truth and myself. It's a path that leads, yes, 
to a kind of hell. But there we find others who've gone before us, who stand with us and help to hold us up so that we, in our turn, might be able to say to others as they arrive, keep your mind in hell, but despair not. <laughs>